And we are called the dwelling place of God. We are called the temple of God. What does it mean for God to dwell in us? Shouldn't that be some kind of a radical, powerful kind of a thing? purpose does Paul have in telling the Ephesians that this is what he prays for them? He shows them his praise and he praises God that you have been sealed with the eternal guarantee. And then he prays for them or tells them how he prays for them. He prays for them by saying, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glories, will give you, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Why would He say that to the Ephesians? He doesn't tell us. But I think the only conclusion that we can come to is that Paul wants to stir into the Ephesians a type of holy dissatisfaction. He wants to say to them, this spirit, this wonderful inheritance that you have been sealed, the promise of the Jewish nation is yours through the work of the Holy Spirit, the illumining work, the sealing work of the Holy Spirit is now yours. What a wonderful thing that is. Now, I pray that the Spirit's given to you. In other words, the Ephesians are to hear this and in their hearts think, it is by the work of the Spirit that everything comes to me. That is so necessary. This work of the Spirit is so non-optional. And now Paul is praying that this would be done. How much more should I pray? How much more should I labor in the prayer of asking and praying that God would give to me this Spirit that I praise Him for giving to me? I think that's what Paul wants to stir the Ephesian believers up to do, to, to praying for this Spirit. Now, do we pray for the Spirit? What's our recognition of the importance of the Spirit in our daily life, our church life? What, what is our recognition of the importance of the Spirit? Here's how you can tell that really easily. It's not the first time you've heard me say this, but you can tell that by just simply listening to your prayers. How often do you ask God to give the Spirit or to fill with the Spirit or to work with the Spirit somehow in some way in your life? The more consistently you ask for that, that tells you how the, the, the level of importance that you attach to the work of the Spirit. Now, there's a couple of reasons that I think that we don't often pray, or at least not often enough, we don't often enough pray for the work of the Spirit. And I think that they both of those boil down to one of two things, or a combination of the both. And that is a low view of God and a high view of ourselves. We have a high view of ourselves. I understand this stuff. I've been in church for years. I've had this taught to me, preached to me. I've read this. I understand this stuff, right? High view of me. And then low view of God. His Word can be understood by me. 
His word is not so high above me that I have to have supernatural powers in order to understand it. High view of self, low view of God. That causes us to have, I think, a deficient praying and asking for the illuminating work of the Spirit. Because if we properly understand Paul's message, and this is, this is what I would call a message to the Ephesians that comes between the words. You know what I, what I mean when we say read between the lines? I think that this is what Paul wants the Ephesians to grasp, even though he doesn't say it in so many words. He wants them to read this and say, wow, the Spirit, the Spirit, by the Spirit, I have this, without the Spirit's illuminating work, I don't have any of this. But by His work, I have it all. And Paul is praying that I would have it. Let me pray too. I think that's what he wants to stir them up to. As well as us. But now what I want to do is lead the text. We sort of work through the text and we hopefully understand that as best we can, even though that clearly we can't fully understand this. But I want to take that text and I want to kind of apply it further. I want to push it a little bit further down the road. And I want to spend the rest of the time this morning wrestling through some questions that, let me warn you ahead of time, are disturbing. Anybody like to be asked disturbing questions? No. We We don't care for that. But... Questions that disturb you can sometimes be used powerfully by God to reach into your heart, into areas that are hard and calloused that He can't reach necessarily otherwise. So I'm going to ask a couple of disturbing questions that will be disturbing if you are brutally honest with yourself. So don't, you know, obviously answer or nod your head or shake your head or whatever. Just think to yourself, be There's no reason to lie to yourself. There is none. Be brutally honest with yourself and ask yourself these questions. And the first question would be this. Do you ever read the New Testament and see a great disparity between what you see described as the Christian life and your experience of the Christian life? Does that ever happen? Do you ever read the New Testament, especially the book of Acts? And you see in the pages of Acts things being described and you have to say, my experience is not like that. Now, I know that Acts is a transitional book. There are things in the book of Acts that we shouldn't expect that God does through us. We shouldn't expect that God heals lame people and and brings people back to life like He does in the first part of the book of Acts. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the transformational power that we see narrated to us in the book of Acts. Do you ever read about those things? And you have to say that rarely, if ever, matches my experience. And if so, do you find that disturbing? Now, in order to see that, I think sometimes you have to read the Scriptures like you're reading them for the first time. Because sometimes that's the challenge that we have is we haven't, hopefully, we haven't read the Scriptures one time. And I know that I have, I have read the Scriptures many times and if I'm not careful, if I'm not careful, I can read the Bible and my mind knows the words and my mind will supply the words and I don't even have to look at the page. 
much less engage my soul. That's called reading the Bible for the 5,000th time, not for the first time. But if we can read the Bible through new eyes, if we can read the New Testament through eyes like the Bereans did. Acts 17, remember how Paul comes and he's sharing the Gospel with them and and they're kind of believing, but they're saying, no, 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 we're going to check this with the Scriptures. And they check even what the apostles are saying against the Scriptures. And Luke calls them noble. If we can have the spirit of the Bereans and which is the spirit of illumination, and the Spirit can give His gift of illumination, and we can read the Scriptures as though through new eyes, I think that all of us would have to be brutally honest with ourselves and say, my Christian experience is far more unlike that than it is like that. The experiences described in the book of Acts Talk to us about Jesus, or, or not Acts, but in John's Gospel, Jesus in chapter 14 says, I'm going to send another helper, another of the same kind. And, and remember in John 16, Jesus says, it is to your advantage. It is advantageous for you. It is better for you that I go away so that this helper will come to you. He tells the apostles to wait in Jerusalem for this coming of power. They don't even know what this power is. They don't even know what this is going to be like, but they wait and this power comes upon them and thousands of people get saved at a time. Or we read about the experience of conversion and new life in Christ. And and Paul will tell the Corinthians that, that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and behold, the new has come. We are new creations and we are called the dwelling place of God. We are called the temple of God. What does it mean for God to dwell in us? What does it mean for God to dwell in us? Shouldn't that be some kind of a radical, powerful kind of a thing? Shouldn't that make those whom God dwells in radically different? I'm not a golfer. But if I was a golfer, I would use this illustration. uh, The best golfer, I don't know, Jack Nicklaus? Somebody like that? Uh, So let's say I'm a golfer. And almost, I I didn't say Jack Nicklaus, but Jack Nicklaus, right? He's the golfer. So let's say I'm a golfer. And I want to improve my golf game. And let's say I pay Jack Nicklaus ten thousand dollars to spend all day with me on the golf course seven days in a row 18 holes in the morning 18 holes in the afternoon all day long and i want you jack nicholas to tell me everything that i need to change here's 10 grand and i spend seven days all day long on the golf course with jack nicholas and then the next week i go out with my friends to play golf and they say oh boy we can't wait to see what uh the changes are going to be in your golf game, and it's the same. I make all the same mistakes. I, I shoot it off into the same woods and the same sand traps and everything. What would they say? Did you really spend the week with Jack Nicholas? You got ripped off if you did. 
We are called the dwelling place of God. Shouldn't it be something immediately noticeable about, about us? Shouldn't we have something like the, the power that's spoken of in Acts 4, verse 12? Remember Peter and John? They go before the Sanhedrin and they beat them up and everything and they say, stop talking about Jesus. And they recognize they are common, uneducated men and they say, well, whether it's right for us to, to stop or not, you decide. But we can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. And then we're told that they were astonished. You ever read that and thought, what were they astonished about? Anybody could have said that. Certainly these weren't the only common people that were bold. Certainly these weren't the only uneducated people that, that sort of had an attitude before the Sanhedrin. And it wasn't like they said something all that special. They just said, we can't stop. We're going to keep on talking about this. What was it that they were so astonished about? I know that some of you have had some conversations with some of you that um, tell me that you have some strange thoughts. So here's a strange thought. You can tell me if you've ever had a thought like this. Have you ever thought what a caterpillar thinks about? Who's ever thought about what, a, what does the caterpillar think about? Now, a caterpillar's brain is probably so small that it's all he can do to keep all those legs moving together and sort of do his little area of the dirt, looking for some food and everything and whatever caterpillars do. That's probably all that a caterpillar could really think about. But what if a caterpillar could think? What if a caterpillar could think? And he spends his life looking for this food here and there and searching and everything. And one day, this irresistible urge comes over him to build a cocoon. And he builds a cocoon and he takes a nap. And when he wakes up, he can fly. If a caterpillar could think, what would a caterpillar think about that? Waking up to be able to fly. Shouldn't that be comparable to our Christian experience? Now here's when you say, what are you trying to do, Pastor? Are you trying to... to sow doubts in our mind about the Word of God? Are you trying to sow doubts in our mind about our salvation? No. I'm not trying to do either of those. What I'm trying to do is, that, is what I think the same thing the Apostle Paul was doing is to stir up some sort of sanctified dissatisfaction, some sort of holy dissatisfaction with the Spirit we have. Not with the Spirit Himself, but a deep, earnest yearning for what we see in the Scriptures. A, a pleading, a, a desperate yearning for what we see in the Scriptures. And a connection to be made when we see that our lives are missing something that the Scriptures narrate to us to immediately make that connection to the Spirit. And to yearn for more of Him and to cry out for more of His control and to to desire something like Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and in power. No coincidence that Paul uses those two phrases. Demonstration of the Spirit, power. Or later in the same book he says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Do we want that? Do you want that spirit? 
Before you answer yes or no, pause. Because here comes the next disturbing question. Do you want that spirit? When we talk about the spirit, I think that there's always three reactions that, that we sort of get in our circles of faith. One reaction would be from some who would say, all right, now we're going to talk about some of the gifts of the Spirit, some of the miraculous workings, some of the charismatic power of the Spirit. Yeah, that's what I've been waiting for. Some might have that reaction. Some might have the opposite reaction, sort of tense up a little bit, kind of worried, uh, not sure if we're going to start talking about speaking in tongues or charismatic gifts or gifts of healing and that sort of thing. And, and just let's not go too far with this and everything. So some sort of tense up about that. And then there's a sort of a middle path where some would say the key is balance. We must balance between the charismatic gifts and the more conservative understanding of the Spirit. I think those are the three typical reactions that we get in the church when we start talking about the Spirit in us. Which of those three is right? None of them. It is not right for us to be consumed with charismatic gifts and tongues and and those so-called gifts of the Spirit. Neither is it right for us to be so tentative and so afraid of the Spirit's working that we don't want to talk about it. But, likewise, it is not right for us to talk about a balance because God is not a balance. God is infinite in His perfection in every way. And so whatever God is, He is infinite in that. We don't need to balance God out. We simply need to be faithful and understand the God as He reveals Himself to us in the Scriptures. So what do the Scriptures talk about? When they, when they talk about being filled with the Spirit, when the Spirit is given, use whatever sort of phrase you want to use, what are the Scriptures talking about? Here's what they're not talking about. Spiritual gifts. Charismatic gifts or those kinds of things. That's not what the Scriptures are talking about. When it talks about being filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, particularly in the book of Acts, if you, every, every time in the book of Acts, and there's many, every time in the book of Acts when a person is filled with the Spirit or receives the Spirit, two things happen. Number one, they are controlled by the Spirit. Number two, they speak powerful words for Jesus. That's what always happens in the Scriptures when somebody's filled with the Spirit. They have something to say about Jesus and they're controlled by the Spirit. Our God is a consuming fire. So when I ask, do you want that Spirit? That Spirit is a consuming fire. And when that Spirit manifests Himself in a person, the effects are control, and speaking. So I think if all of us are brutally honest with ourselves and we ask ourselves the question, do I want that spirit? The answer that we have to wrestle with is the answer that, that we might give, which is yes on my terms. Yes, with some limitations, with some things off limits. Because when we talk about the Spirit controlling us or the Spirit giving to us powerful words of testimony, there's two things that come up in my mind that are roadblocks for us 
Number one is the fear of man. If the Spirit starts giving us these things to say, then what's going to happen? People are going to think we're weird. They're going to think we're quite odd. They're going to think that we are uh, 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 fooled. They're going to think that we've been suckered by some new church that we're going to. They're going to think that some sleep-talking pastor has convinced us of something, and now we're questioning things we shouldn't question. I don't want people to think that about me. Fear of man. And so when we start thinking about the Spirit being given as as Paul's talking about here, well, yeah, as long as there is some limits to that. That's not how God works. He's a consuming fire. The other thing is love of comfort. Because when spirit takes control, well, I don't know. He might want me to go somewhere or he might want me to give something or he might want me to do something. And I'm okay doing a whole lot of things or giving a whole lot of things or doing a whole lot of things, but at the end of the day, there's got to be something where I can where I can say this much or where I can say that's kind of off limits. See? That's the difficulty of this question. Do you want that spirit? If you say yes, then what you are saying yes to is complete control and powerful words of testimony. Is that what we want? I think that what Paul is saying to the the Ephesians is he wants them to sense down in their soul that although the Spirit is given and they are sealed with the Spirit, there's far more. There's far more. And he wants to stir them up to pray. What What would happen if the entire Ephesian church just started praying every time they're together, every time they're alone? Just praying individually, praying corporately for the Spirit, for the Spirit, with hearts that say, that kind of control, no limits. That kind of speech, no limits. I think that's what Paul is trying to communicate to the Ephesians and also to us. Praise the Lord for sealing us eternally with the Spirit. Pray to the Lord that He give us of His Spirit. So how can we do that? How can we stir ourselves up as a church, as individual Christians? How can we stir ourselves up to be able to say, as the prophet Jeremiah says, remember when God says through Jeremiah, seek me and I will be found when you seek me with your whole heart. How can we stir that up in ourselves? It all comes back to the work of the Spirit. His work of illumining. When He illumines to us His Word and we see God in His Word, with that comes the desire for that. That outweighs that control or that uh, love of comfort and that fear of man. And that is the only answer. You can't stir yourself up to this. You can't talk yourself into this. You can't work it up in your own heart. God does this work, His illumining work that causes us to see Him and then pray and ask for it. So this is how Paul can say, you've received the Spirit, now I pray for the Spirit. And that is the lifelong mission of the Christian. Knowing that we've received the Spirit, knowing that we're eternally sealed, we pray 
for the Spirit. Come to us, Spirit, and show us the irresistible beauty of yourself, the irresistible beauty of a Messiah who dies for us. Show us that so that our desire for Him will outweigh every fear and every desire for comfort in our lives.